Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we discuss how the Russian invasion of Ukraine and sanctions imposed by Western governments in response are affecting financial markets and investors. I want to understand how equities, bonds and commodities are reacting and whether some of these structural changes might become permanent. And then later I ask the dumb question of the week. Why do central banks target an inflation rate of 2%? Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the economic impacts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think before we get into it, it's worth saying this is kind of a secondary consideration, really. I mean, like everyone, I've been following what's happening on social media and in the press. And, you know, some of the images we've seen coming out of Ukraine are heartbreaking. And I just want to express my solidarity with everyone there and the inspiration those people are providing. Yeah, I've got to say, I was kind of choked up when I was watching some of the footage. I had this uh, really moving video of this girl singing the song from Frozen in a bomb shelter. It really choked me up. Yeah, it really is heartbreaking. So we will look at the economic and the market impacts that are being felt in Russia and Ukraine and around the world. I suppose we've just come out of two years of a horrific pandemic where we were seeing growth stalling and commodity prices spiking and inflation going up as supply chains were snarled. I think it's fair to say this was the last thing the world needed. Yeah, I think we've had all four riders of the apocalypse now. Yeah. War, famine, disease and pestilence. I think I've been kind of surprised and heartened by the unity of the Western sanctions, which have been all encompassing and had a massive impact on the Russian economy. I think even Russia was surprised by the severity of the sanctions, but also the resolve of many allies around the world in order to impose them. So one of the big ones we've seen is that Russia has built up massive central bank reserves, over $600 billion worth, and Western countries have actually been able to freeze a large part of that and stop the central bank in Russia from accessing them. That seems pretty unprecedented. Certainly for an economy of this size, clearly countries like Iran have had similarly severe sanctions imposed in the past. But I think an economy of this size, it's never really happened before. And it's going to be really interesting to see what the repercussions are, not just for the role of Russia in the global economy, but also the kind of secondary effects of which I'm sure we're going to discuss many in this podcast. So would one of the secondary effects be other countries looking at their reserves and thinking, hmm, maybe these aren't really money as I thought they would be. And I'm reliant on the US and Europe to honour those debts effectively. Yeah, I think it also makes really clear the politicisation of money and the fact that Ultimately, the value of money depends on political decisions by the country which issues that currency. So in the case of the dollar, many people are now thinking, well, you know, what if I fall foul of the US? Particularly, China's probably thinking about that right now. Oh, yeah. China must be looking at this and thinking, I don't like the fact I own a huge slug of US government debt. Yeah. And if suddenly they decide to invade Taiwan, for example, then the consequences could be very painful. But of course, Russia's been planning this for a long time, since 2014, probably, when it annexed Crimea. So, you know, they've built up huge reserves. They've got a balanced budget. So they take in via taxes and other sources of revenue the same amount they spend as a government. Yeah, they have tried to lower the amount of dollars in their reserves, haven't they, and boost things like gold. So they are less reliant than they otherwise would have been. And of course, the gold is held within Russia. But of course, now the problem is, if they wanted to raise funds by selling that gold, 
Who would they sell it to? And what currency would they sell it in? Well, that's the problem with gold, isn't it? Gold in itself is no use unless you can trade it for dollars. <laughs> so I think one of the things that might come out of this is maybe a reduction in the strength of the dollar as a kind of universal currency. People always assume that you'd be able to trade the dollar. And that's really an assumption that's been around pretty much since the Second World War. Whereas with other currencies, I think you know there was always a question of how stable they were. Whereas the dollar's been the kind of mainstay of capitalism until this point in time. I mean, it still is right now, isn't it? It's just, it'll take a while if any country decides to try and unwind their reliance on the dollar. Well, now more than ever, because in a crisis, people always turn to the dollar, at least if they can. But I think the point is that many parts of the world now can't do that. And for those countries, particularly Russia and its allies, I think they are probably thinking, well, what are the alternatives? And they've been planning those alternatives for a long time time. Some people are talking about using alternatives from China because, you know, that could potentially have systems in place which would be alternatives to what the US is offering, both in terms of payment systems, but also maybe even the renminbi. Yeah, but you're jumping out of the frying pan into the fire there, aren't you? If you want to be not reliant on a political adversary, potentially, if you're reliant on China maintaining your foreign currency reserves. Well, there's no kind of neutral choice here. So you have to make a choice, a political choice, I guess, now, according to which group of currencies you want to be in. Will it be the Russia-China pole of the world or will it be the West, which is kind of centred around the US? I think the political debate about this has been interesting if you look back in time, because I remember not that long ago, especially on the right in the US, people saying, oh my goodness, China holds all this US debt, that gives them huge power over the US, when actually it's the other way around. China holding a lot of US debt gives the US a huge amount of power. And it kind of reminds me of that saying, which is like, if you owe the bank a million dollars, you've got a problem. If you owe the bank a billion dollars, the bank's got a problem. In this case, the bank is China. And a lot of the countries which have prospered due to things like a trade surplus usually end up with a dollar surplus. So I don't think that problem's going away. You know, if you want to sell stuff, you want to sell it to Americans because they've got lots of money and they'll buy it in dollars. So the essential problem I don't think goes away for people who create natural resources or people who create finished goods. Really, you're going to end up with dollars, whatever the story. Yeah, you can't easily turn to the Chinese renminbi, for example, because it's not the means of exchange internationally and they have capital controls. But for example, for commodities, we could have alternatives which are traded in renminbi. So there could be a renminbi oil market and, you know, reserves would then build up in renminbi. But, you know, it's not clear whether people would prefer that option to the dollar. And I think in many cases they wouldn't. But just looking at what happened to the ruble over the last few days, literally two weeks, it is astonishing how much it's sold off. So I was just looking today at how much the ruble sold off. And as we make this podcast, which I should say is 8th of March 2022, the ruble is now down year to date by about 47%. So it's halved in value. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything like that for such a large economy. And then the Belarus ruble, which is kind of associated, is down 17%. And I was kind of pleased that the Ukrainian hryvnia is only down 7%. Yeah. So that's, that's heartwarming. 
<laughs> so they have won that battle at least. And if we move beyond the world of central banks into commercial banks, we've also seen severe sanctions there with many Russian banks removed from the SWIFT payment network, which I believe is having quite an effect on their ability to trade internationally. Yeah, I mean, SWIFT doesn't stop you trading. It is just a messaging system. But I suspect a lot of these large companies will have backends built around the SWIFT messaging system. So if your entire infrastructure depends on it, you'd be very reluctant to start trading over the phone. You know, <laughs> that's going to create huge amounts of cost in order to trade with Russia. So I think it has been very effective. And not only have things directly affected Russia via sanctions, but even things which aren't sanctioned now effectively become sanctioned because people will be worried about the repercussions if they do trade with entities which are Russia-related. Yeah, there's a huge counterparty risk there, isn't there? So Evraz, for example, is still trading on the London Stock Exchange. It's down hugely. It had a huge rally yesterday. But of course, that was off a massive fall. Is that Roman Abramovich's company? That's right. It's a steel manufacturer. And it generates a lot of its revenue in Russia. So it's a little bit surprising that it's managed to not be sanctioned yet. But the worry is always that that's just around the corner. And then there's a secondary effect, which is people are wondering, you know, has this bank lent money to these entities and how much liability do they have? So we've started to see really weird things like funding costs for banks start to increase again, like we saw in 2008, for the same reason, which is people were just wondering, which is the next entity which is going to be revealed to have these large exposures, which is the next shoe to drop. Exactly. I mean, it seemed like we were already in an unprecedented situation economically, where markets, no one was really sure what they were going to do over the next year. And now this has just added another layer onto that. And who knows what all the interconnections are and how this will play out. So for example, today, just today, I just can't keep track of all the headlines, but we just saw that nickel just hit $100,000 per tonne. If you look at the price graph, it's just gone vertical. What was it before the invasion? Yeah, so nickel was trading at about $20,000 per tonne until 2022. And then suddenly we've gone up to 100000 And what's even more worrying was that there was a margin call for China Construction Bank, which is a massive state-owned lender from China. And they had to be given extra time to meet their margin call. Oh, man. So... So when you hear that, you think, oh my God, what are the knock-on effects of this going to be? When a state-owned entity like that, which is absolutely massive, suffers these kind of margin problems. And is this nickel surge because a lot of the um, production is in Russia? Well, it's only 7%, but of course there's a huge demand for it growing rapidly because of batteries for electric vehicles. And of course, it's also used in the manufacture of steel. But generally, I think people are just nervous. Perhaps they're hoarding. It may be that people have preemptively brought forward certain trades. But whatever the reason, it looks like this is some kind of short squeeze, potentially, which means that people were short the market, then they had to close out that trade. So they had to buy in order to do that. You're happy you own a commodity fund right now? <laughs> Very happy. I mean, it's gone up hugely. It's up about 40%. I didn't put a lot into it. It's in my fund portfolio. But yeah, that one's done incredibly well. Maybe it'll make up for my K-Web. <laughs> <laughs> Your Chinese exposure has not done so well. No. We've seen commodities really spike. I mean, expectedly, right? Oil has surged to, I think, $140 a barrel, which is the most since 2008. Natural gas prices, obviously, Russia's so critically important there. They've gone up. I think Europe gets around 40% of its natural gas from Russia. And even things like wheat. I know Ukraine and Russia 
are huge exporters of wheat, and that's going to have massive repercussions on North Africa and the Middle East, who import the vast majority of their wheat from there. Yeah, and there's been a drought in Iran recently, which has caused a huge demand uptick for wheat to be imported, a lot of it from Russia and Ukraine. But of course, a lot of the harvest won't be possible now, given that Ukraine is a battlefield. I mean, that's the kind of thing which could have really big second-order effects because the parts of the world we mentioned there, North Africa and Middle East, are not necessarily the most stable. And once people start missing out on their staple foods, you know, that's the kind of thing that can cause trouble politically. Yeah, it can cause political instability, particularly in the developing world. So wheat's up 63% year-to-date, soybeans 25 corn by 25 Any news on pork bellies? <laughs> I haven't got pork bellies, but actually live cattle's gone down and feeder cattle down uh, so far year to date. Heating oil up 70%, gasoline 61%, crude oil 60%. So yeah, I think across the board, and even fossil fuels like coal up 148% year to date, because of course people are now having to turn to coal to kind of fill the gap in their energy sources. So what is all this going to do to inflation? It seems like when we did that episode a while back now, I remember you said inflation kind of has to come down over the next year because oil can't be 40% higher again year on year. And the world is doing its best to uh, <laughs> meet your bet there, Robin. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, I think if anything, you know, I'd be surprised if this doesn't cause a much longer inflation spike, particularly for commodities. We can see that very clearly. But then we get the secondary effects, which is Higher oil price makes transportation of food more expensive and all goods and services which have to be moved around physically. So, yeah, I think this means inflation will last a lot longer than previously it might have done. And presumably it's the type of inflation that central bank can't do a huge amount about. It can't end the war. It can't boost supply very easily. That's not what it's there for. Yeah. So this is what people call an exogenous shock. So something which is outside the system, such as commodity prices, that's an exogenous shock. And there's not much the Fed can do about it. If anything, they may step back from their rate hikes this year because of the potential damage to growth in the US economy. Because real wage growth now is deeply negative across almost all of the developed world. There's no way wages can keep up with, you know, inflation at 5 7%. And I suppose returning to energy, Europe especially has a real dilemma on its hands here, given how reliant it is on Russian exports of oil and gas. It's going to have to try and do something about that strategically, which is going to require a lot of investment, I would have thought. Yeah, in fact, they're just shutting down the last of their nuclear power stations in Germany, which was a catastrophic error of judgment, I think. They might reverse that decision, surely. Well, let's hope they will, because the alternative is coal, which is much more polluting. Not renewable, of course. Nuclear power is not renewable because you have to mine uranium. But I think the drag on the German economy of having much higher energy costs is going to be considerable. So, you know, there are two effects here, which it's important to separate. The first one is household disposable income, which goes down because you're spending more on bills. And that tends to create a drag on spending, which in turn affects growth of revenue for companies, but also economic growth. So that'll be one effect. It'll be a break on the global economy, particularly the ones which are exposed to things like Russian gas. So that's why I think European equity has sold off so much this year, much more so than the US. And then the second effect is the direct effect on earnings for companies because the cost of doing business increases with higher commodity prices. So I think those are the two primary mechanisms by which this crisis affects equity markets, but also developed economies. 
Russia was effectively irrelevant when it came to things like the EM indices, because after the sanctions were imposed in 2014 due to the annexation of Crimea, the weight in all of these indices fell. So to take it out of the EM indices was almost irrelevant. And if you actually look at how much revenue is generated by trading for S&P 500 companies with Russia, it's less than 1%. So from that point of view, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't really directly affect revenues for US companies. But I think the indirect effect via inflation is going to be a biggie. Yeah. So it's not that we need to sell to Russian consumers particularly. It's that we need their exports, which are kind of the first order inputs to a lot of our goods. It's kind of a difficult situation because prices are global. Even if the US is self-sufficient for oil, it still has a higher oil cost because prices of oil in the US are driven by global prices, which could be affected by a supply shock from Russia. So at least they don't have to import oil at a huge cost. So the economic impact might not be so bad as it was in the 70s when we had, you know, the huge inflationary spike that followed the Arab oil embargo. But I think I think the effect on the average American is still painful because they have to pay for gasoline. They have to pay for heating oil. So the US can't control that price very easily. They do have strategic reserves, so they can soften the blow. And I also saw that Joe Biden's administration had a meeting with the Venezuelan president yesterday, which is, you know, the whole world is changing here. They're trying to do a deal with Iran. They're doing a deal with Venezuela, it looks like. It's, everything's shifting quickly. It's like going to the least dodgy regime to get uh, somebody who can produce oil. But I think, I think what's interesting is that they call this the Blinken spike because the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has actually said that they're thinking of banning imports of Russian oil. So one of the reasons why we saw oil spikes so heavily and gas as well is because of that. And of course, the counter strike from the Russians was that they could turn off the gas taps for Europe, which would be catastrophic. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It could get far worse if that happens. Then you're talking about presumably Germany going to a three-day working week or something, because they just won't have the energy. Yeah, because 60% of their gas comes from Russia. Yeah, you compare that with France and they're worlds apart. So Russia only imports less than 20% of the gas supply for France. But France has got so much nuclear power that, you know, they've been exporting it across much of Europe. So I think a lot of this has highlighted the strategic importance of having your own supply of energy, which doesn't depend on potential enemies. It's hard, though, isn't it? Because like you hinted at, a lot of the energy supplies tend to sit in countries where there isn't great stability or the regimes are questionable. Well, longer term, I think this will accelerate the shift to renewable energy. I think that's become very clear that if you do depend on people outside your country for energy, then you're always going to be beholden to these kind of regimes. Like Canada. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> Oh, I love Canada and the maple syrup, clearly. Do you know there's a strategic reserve for Canadian maple syrup? No, I didn't know that. How do I tap this reserve? <laughs> oh, tap, very good. Well done. So maybe let's move on to talking about how Russia's responded to all these sanctions. So I think the first thing to say is they've shut their entire stock market for, what is it, a couple of weeks almost now? Yeah, and I, th I guess people are just terrified to see what's in the cupboard. You know, if you open the door now, it's going to be brutal. There's no question. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's going to be huge sell-offs and markets effectively can't ignore what's going on, even in Russia. Are Russian stocks basically worthless now? If you're a Western investor, I think that's probably true. Now, 
there are certain entities in Russia which are going to probably see it as their patriotic duty to buy those Russian stocks and somehow inflate the price. But at the end of the day, if, if these entities can't trade outside Russia, if their earnings go hugely lower, then it'll be obvious that this is just a kind of sham. So what's going to happen to the Russian equity market? I don't know, but it's. I think the word volatility doesn't really capture it. Given that the major global indices, MSCI, S&P, etc., have cut the Russian market out of their indices now, will that not kind of scupper any recovery in those stocks, even if the war came to an end? Yeah, I think as long as the sanctions last, it's going to be very difficult to find a bottom for these stocks. Because if your revenue source effectively is switched off or massively reduced, then you have to re-rate downwards hugely. What was interesting was that we saw many exchange-traded funds, which are exposed to Russia, continue to trade on Western markets, even though the stuff in the fund was frozen. And it was interesting because a lot of people have been saying that ETFs are the source of market instability. And yet they were the bastions of stability, which created liquidity even when the underlying stocks had effectively dried up. So I think that's a really strong case for using ETFs. Even in a crisis like this, they carried on providing liquidity, even though they were halted from creating new units of the fund. That's effectively how they ran for several days. So it was basically people just speculating on what the price might be on the other side of this crisis. And there were massive amounts of money that wanted to flow into these funds because they saw massive bounce around the corner. Perhaps they thought this was like the Crimea crisis in 2014 and that things would just go back to normal. Russia would host the World Cup in a few years' time and everything would be fine. But clearly that's not the case in this, in this instance. And in fact, the trading's shut down for all of those ETFs as far as I'm aware now. It does seem that people were just so conditioned to buy the dip, retail investors, I mean, that they saw Russian prices going down 50% plus and they thought, oh, well, it can't be like that forever. I'll go in. Well, yes, it can. It can go to zero. I dread to think what's going to happen to this new group of retail investors because they've only seen things like, you know, leverage works, buying the dip works. They've never seen a commodity shock. They've never really seen a sell-off. So I think this will be a really rude awakening. You know, they'll learn more in the space of two years than, you know, it took me 10 years to learn when I was kind of getting into markets in the first place. Thinking about it from the perspective of an investor, what should we really be doing now? Is it just stick to the plan or should we be looking to be optimistic and buy a commodity fund or gold? Or, you know, is that just <laughs> too late? Well, the plan, I assume, included the ability to weather this kind of storm because equity markets fall by 50% every decade and you should have been absolutely okay with that and planning for it. So you should be thinking, oh, equity is cheaper now, so I should buy more if you're drip feeding. So that plan shouldn't really have changed. You should really factor in crises such as these and worse. If you are going to get commodity exposure, all I'd say is be aware that commodities are very volatile and very unpredictable. You don't really need them as part of your portfolio. That's why it's in my fund portfolio, my LNG commodity fund. Commodities seem to be the kind of thing which will pay off for you once every 10 or 20 years, but holding them forever means you'll underperform because they don't outperform inflation. That's right. And I think for most people, it doesn't make sense to hold commodities always. And they are unpredictable and things such as political crises, things like agricultural problems, if in, in the case of agricultural commodities, all sorts of things which are just inherently unpredictable will drive their prices. Sometimes you win big, but it is really just a lottery. What's been surprising to me, really, is that 
the broad market, whether it's the S&P 500 or, you know, global equity, has not really crashed. Why hasn't it crashed yet? This seems like it's a huge deal. Well, it's, it's only down by around 12% for the S&P so far, year to date. Yeah, well, it should be down 50%. What's going on? <laughs> and the Nasdaq only down 20%. So we're talking about a correction and a bear market there. Those are the definitions. 10% is a correction, 20% is a bear market. But, you know, having a 10% fall or a 12% fall in the S&P in the course of a year is not unusual. You know, that happens all the time. It's just that we're so used to having markets that just rally, rally, rally that it seems like a shock. But in fact, this is completely normal. And even if there wasn't a crisis, this is the kind of fall you'd expect to see. Well, that's what I mean, Robin. Why isn't it down more? If we've got oil going to potentially $200 a barrel, as Bank of America is predicting, surely we're going to have a huge crash. Many people think so. And if the commodity shock does actually lead to some of the secondary effects, like, you know, these margin calls could force certain hedge funds to sell other assets in order to meet the margin calls. That way you get contagion of volatility across other asset classes. This is typically the way it happens. It's a kind of cascading effect where you sell the stuff you can because there's certain stuff you can't sell. So the liquid stuff gets affected too. But I think markets generally look through things like war because the US is not dependent on Russia for its earnings. So really, the second order effects are the only ones which are going to affect it. And those take a while to work through the system. So I think people are still kind of thinking everything's going to be fine. Equity markets generally do that. If you compare bondholders and equity holders, equity holders are always glass half full. Bondholders are the Cassandras. You know, they always think things are terrible and the world's about to end. Oh, and I should say Michael Burry's Twitter account has just switched on. Of course, he's called Cassandra. That's his Twitter handle. Time to shine for <laughs> Michael Burry. <laughs> the ultimate bear. He's come out of the woodwork. I do think just generally in markets, though, human instinct is to be too optimistic in the short term and too pessimistic in the long term. And not just in markets, in all sorts of things, right? In fitness, we think, oh, we can do a 12-week crash course and get in shape. Whereas really, you just do a little bit of exercise every day and they'll see you right. It's just like we underestimate the value of slow, steady compound growth and want these fast results. And this is a really good test of your cognitive biases. You know, if you are tempted to sell when there's this kind of small sell-off, then clearly there's something not quite right. And this is a great test of your ability to stick with the plan, even in the face of a big sell-off and huge negative headlines in the media. That's a really important skill. It's hard to imagine too many more negative headlines, though, right? We've got like genuine talk of nuclear war. But if you look at the multiple for the S&P 500 right now, it's still at roughly the five-year average. It hasn't even reached the 10-year average, and it's far above the long-term average, which is a 15 times multiple. So there's still huge amounts of optimism baked into equity markets. So I think this is not even the foothills of the despair you feel during a full-on crisis. This is still, mm, I think it's going to be okay. This isn't oh my God, the world's ending and I never want to buy equities ever again. Yeah, the market's not making me feel despair at all because I'm sort of thinking it should be down 40% and we're only down 12%. Happy days. <laughs> but I think ultimately there will come a time always when we reach that despair level again and we're far from it now. And like you say, I think you know the potential for this to escalate into a much worse situation is very real, but we certainly don't have all the pieces in place yet. So what would be some of the things that could push us over the edge into a real crash? 
Um, you mentioned these second order contagion effects in a financial sense, but I guess there's also the question of the war, like Russia could escalate further. It could use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. It could push its forces into Moldova or other countries. And each of those things would presumably make people more scared. Yeah, all of those would tick the boxes for an escalation that would be disastrous for markets, potentially. Another one would be if they switch off gas to Western Europe. So, you know, Germany effectively would be entirely scuppered by that. But so would much of Europe. But, but I think even if that didn't happen, if that kind of escalation didn't happen, you can still get shocks due to entities which have perhaps taken too much leverage, which then run into trouble. Because when you shock a system like this, you have all sorts of unforeseen bankruptcies or companies which can't meet their margin requirements. And maybe they've kind of filled up to the gills with Russian assets. And we haven't actually seen the mark to market losses yet. And the other thing to say is we weren't in the smooth sailing environment anyway. A lot of people before this whole Ukraine-Russia situation kicked off were already predicting a super bubble and a massive crash. And now we've added on a huge war in Europe. Yeah. So I think I think we'd already seen the sell-off to some extent. And it could be that this simply compounds on top of that. But it's only so far, I think, markets are still very sanguine about the situation. The other thing Putin and Russia must be looking at is their sovereign bonds and what's happening to yields on those. Yeah, so we've seen yields double. We've seen prices fall by about 80% on some of those bonds, particularly the ones which are denominated not in rubles, but in a hard currency like the dollar. Now, you can actually buy protection against a default it's called a credit default swap. Oh, I've only heard that in the context of the big short and the end of the financial world kind of thing. In fact, that's how I cut my teeth in finance, was plumbing in credit default swaps into this risk system. But effectively, the way these things work is, let's say you pay 100 for a bond and it defaults. Usually, the value of the bond doesn't go to zero. There's something called a recovery value. Now, that recovery value is usually, say, I don't know, 20, 40%. So out of your 100, you'll get 20 back. And then the CDS will pay you the difference. So you'll get your 80 to make you whole again. So it's a kind of insurance, is it? That's right. The way this works, you have to figure out after the default, what are the bonds worth? Are they worth 20, 30, 40? So what you do is you hold an auction. Now, in that auction, you have to be able to trade the underlying bonds. There's a real question as to whether that'll be possible. If there's no liquidity in the bonds anyway, will there be an auction that's possible to be held? So there's a secondary risk there. The other kind of wiggle room that Russian bonds have currently got is that they can also pay you back in rubles rather than dollars for these hard currency bonds. Is that in the terms of the contract, is it? That's built into the terms of the contract. So full marks to the legal team that created yeah. those contracts for supposedly hard currency debt from Russia. So what I'm taking from all this is people who have bought these bonds and bought credit default swaps as insurance, the insurance might not pay out if these bonds go into default. Well, it's hard to see how the mechanics would work. People are saying it's a little bit like another default which happened previously, which was in Venezuela, where I think they repudiated their debt. They said they weren't going to repay it. And then there was a real question of whether the auction would work. Is this a systemic risk? Is the bond market big enough for Russian sovereign debt that there's a lot of exposure on bank balance sheets in Europe, say? Not this time around. And if this had happened in 2007, it would have been a very different story. But... At the moment, the amount of outstanding Russian debt is fairly minimal. So I suspect it's only a few entities which are going to have this exposure where this would matter. But it is kind of interesting to see the mechanics of that. 
and also to see this kind of train wreck of, of the CDS contracts, which are now trading at over 2,500 basis points. That's like 25%. That's effectively pricing in an imminent default. If the war continues as is, it's hard to see Russia not defaulting on its sovereign debt. But I guess, I guess the kind of upside might be that eventually there is some kind of resolution. Perhaps Putin leaves office voluntarily or not. And then... <laughs> voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> it could be ill health. Okay, yeah. But, but let's say that happens, and then suddenly the oil revenues start rolling in again. Well, suddenly those sovereign bonds will go back up to 100. So, you know, that's always the risk with distressed debt, that you don't price in the actual recovery, which could happen. So distressed debt investors live and breathe those probabilities. So that's what will be going through these kind of hedge funds that buy this kind of debt. This is the kind of calculation which they'll be considering. So they're like the most optimistic of the optimists. Yeah, but of course, there's a, there's a kind of uh, alarm clock built into the instrument, which is when the bond matures. So if things don't turn around before then, then effectively you could lose everything. So if we think about this now from Putin's perspective, if we have to force ourselves to, it seems like he's miscalculated. By all accounts, the war is not going to plan for Russia. How can he really step back from this and not lose face? Well, they say you should always give your adversary a chance to retreat in any kind of negotiation and save face. A golden bridge. A golden bridge. So in this case, I guess that would be some kind of agreement whereby Russia keeps Crimea and maybe the eastern states have some kind of autonomy but I think the kind of red line from the point of view of Ukraine is any kind of leadership, which is essentially run as a puppet government from Russia. I think they would not allow that. So I think that's the kind of negotiation which Russia will effectively have to agree to eventually if the war doesn't end. And I think, you know, membership of NATO on its southern border is what Russia just can't envisage or stomach. That's the point at which there's going to have to be some kind of resolution. Neither side will back down on that thing, NATO membership. It still seems a stretch that we might get there, though. Like, I imagine Ukraine would be reluctant to give up the potential of NATO or even EU membership or concede territory in their east because there's been an aggressive war, especially if Russia isn't dominating the war as it hoped to. And the other thing is, you know, this has caused a huge amount of damage to the infrastructure and economy of Ukraine. Would they not be expecting reparations from Russia? I think that would be expecting too much. I think membership of the EU, if they could somehow accelerate that, would help them rebuild. And there'd obviously be capital that would come via that. So that would probably be the best outcome for Ukraine from this situation. But the thing to remember is that Putin came to power in the 90s in the wake of the terrible economic impacts of what happened as the Russian Federation effectively broke down. And there was huge instability with the ruble and economic hardship at the time. So the deal was that Putin would come in as a strong man and rebuild the economy and create stability, which he has done for a long period of time. But suddenly we're going back to exactly that situation in which he took power. So I think that's the difficulty with him maintaining power, which is that this kind of instability is something you can't hide. It's going to be obvious to anyone who lives in Russia, despite what they see on TV, that there are some real problems. Yeah, I mean, MasterCard, Visa, American Express have all stopped functioning, so they can't use their cards for international payments. Plus, we're thinking about runs on banks, and they can't even watch Netflix. But I think it's going to be obvious to the average Russian that something's not right, and that things are suddenly a lot worse. And the economic impacts will be 
pretty atrocious. You know, inflation's one of them. Low growth effectively means less job stability and a lot less money for the government to spend things like infrastructure. And I think if Russia gets to the point where they want to re-enter the international community in a normal fashion, it's kind of hard to envisage that with Putin still in charge. I think this has crossed the red line for him. But these regimes, which have a lot of money from selling fossil fuels or other kind of commodities, usually these kind of societies can exist for a long time without having to come back into the fold. You know, if you look at Venezuela, for example... So I don't see that there's an easy way out of this for Russia unless it somehow backs off with the invasion. And I think that's very unlikely. I think it's unlikely just because Putin's position in Russia would presumably become unsustainable if he's bet the farm on this invasion and then has to sort of unwind it. Yeah, eventually the cost may become too great and perhaps this will be a means by which he could get deposed. But then the worry is always, you know, who'll replace him? And his whole entourage have clearly benefited from these kind of crises, become very rich from it, and they're unlikely to want to change the status quo overnight. So I think we'll probably just get more of the same. Another mini Putin. The frustrating thing is that Russia could be such a successful, rich economy and country. It doesn't need to keep trying to expand its borders, surely. It's not going to get attacked. It's a nuclear state. It's got a lot of resources. What's it doing? I don't understand it. But as they see it, you know, Russia effectively was hugely diminished and artificially so when the Soviet Union collapsed. So they still see Ukraine, for example, as part of Russia. So really for them, this is just re-establishing borders as they were before. And there's a word for this. I forgot the name of the word. That's why we can never do a live broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just look that up. Editor's note. The word Roman was looking for was irredentism. Now, there's been a big debate as to how to steer through this commodity shock crisis in Pensioncraft. So if you want to join that conversation, just go to pensioncraft.com to learn more. So each episode, we ask a dumb question of the week. And we're actually looking for you to submit your own dumb questions to the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. This week's dumb question is, why do central banks target an inflation rate of 2%? Why not zero? Why not 5%? What's so magic about two? Well, the simple fact is there isn't anything magic about two, but there are various reasons why you'd want it to be positive. Now, the primary reason I think is that deflation is seen as a terrible thing. So in the past, during the Great Depression, for example, in the US, there was a period of deflation and it was catastrophic for the economy. You have these spiraling down of prices. People postpone their consumption because they think the prices are going to go down further in future. And then you get a massive fall in revenue for companies, for example, if people are delaying their purchases. So you get this kind of downward spiral. Yeah, everyone just hoards cash, don't they? And there's the cash hoarding aspect as well, because cash is really king when you've got deflation. So just as inflation eats away at the value of your currency, deflation does the opposite. So what you want is a steady erosion, not too large, of your cash so you don't stick it under a mattress. And that forces people to consume a little bit. But you don't want inflation that's too high because clearly then you get kind of hyperinflation and and people see their quality of life gradually get worse. So central banks are kind of walking this tightrope then. They're thinking 2% is enough to nudge people to go out and buy stuff. But it also gives us a bit of a buffer in case we get it wrong and we might hit deflation. And you err on the side of inflation. 
I mean, another reason empirically, if you plot the earnings multiples for the equity market versus inflation, it kind of has a sweet spot around 2 to 4%. That's when people are most exuberant in equity markets. It's very marked if you go back in history and do the plot. In fact, I did that on my latest video. It's kind of like a Mexican hat function where it peaks around that sweet spot of 2 to 4%. A Mexican hat function? Sounds like a stag do. <laughs> well, I could call it a Gaussian, but I suspect uh, people wouldn't like that. It's like a bell-shaped curve, in my mind. Bell-shaped curve, yes, with a peak around that kind of sweet spot, 2 to 4%. So that's when equity does best, and as equity investors, yeah, we should want 2 to 4% inflation then. Yeah, so empirically, you know, that, that's been a kind of good place to be for equity. Another point is that if you have positive interest rates and positive inflation, then it does give the Fed a bit of leeway so that they can cut interest rates when things get slightly scary as they are now. So clearly, if you have positive inflation, that's kind of baked into interest rates as well. So the two are kind of related to one another. So by having slightly positive inflation, it gives a bit of dry powder to the central bank to cut interest rates in a crisis. I guess there's always going to be pressure on a central bank to sort of game the system for political reasons, isn't there? And have artificially low rates to boost the economy going into an election, for example. Is that why central bank independence is spoken of as such a crucial thing for an economy? Well, people still remember Arthur Burns, who is the guy who effectively folded to Nixon. Nixon wanted to get re-elected and he kept interest rates low even when they should have been much higher because inflation was really heating up. And of course, that led to the huge inflation spiral that we saw, which followed. So I think there are many examples where clearly the politicians want to get re-elected. They want bread and circuses. Yeah, free money for everybody. You know, so there is a temptation to do that. So I think that's why it's important. Some people say that's what's going on now. They say, why isn't the Fed hiking? <laughs> I think I think the Fed, I mean, if you listen to what they say, they are very aware of the political risks that they run, and they have to be really careful in what they say. But I think it's very clear that they do see themselves as public servants. Certainly the Fed does. You don't have to read many of Powell's speeches to see that that's the case. So everybody hates them. Of course they do, because they're the ones who take the punch bowl away when things are kind of heating up. And of course, now is one example of that. You know, it's not going to be popular when they raise interest rates. I think fundamentally, the political cycle is too short to capture the full economic cycle. So there's always this mismatch and voters don't know who to blame or reward for any sort of good economic activity. Yes, it's important to have this kind of independent entity, which is not going to be blown by political breezes, which is effectively going to look out for the best interests of the economy. Now, another really important point about inflation is that it lets you plan. So, for example, in Pensioncraft, one of the things we've got is a spreadsheet which looks at how much you have to save. So let's say you're 20 and you have to work out how much the cost of living will be when you're 50 or 55 or 60. Well, you have to use some kind of inflation assumption. Now, if you have no clue what to use, then how do you plan? You can't. Same for a business. If you have to plan cash flows 10 years in the future, you've got to make inflation assumptions. So having a credible target for inflation is really important for that planning process, both for individuals, but also for companies. So that's why everybody's kind of obsessed with the idea of anchoring. So what's the level of inflation which is built into people's minds? Central bankers seem obsessed with inflation expectations. I'm sick of it because I don't believe it. But you know, if, if you have a credible central bank, it's really important that you do have that number that you always come back to. 
And that's why the Fed's effectively made its its 2% target symmetric. If they run below it for an extended period of time, they now allow it to run hot for some period of time. And that's exactly why. So that people can plan. And on average, you'll get back to that 2%. That was quite a change though, wasn't it? Because previously they thought 2% was kind of almost a cap in a way, but now it's an average over time, which effectively allows them to be more expansionary. And it is like steering a super tanker because by the time your policy takes effect, you have to kind of look ahead to see where you're going with inflation in order to make your policy adjust so that you get to where you want to be because there is this lag. You know, they raise interest rates. It will slow down inflation, but it takes a while for it to work through the system. And they do all this hard work and planning and tweaking rates by little bits here and there, and then Russia invades Ukraine and all bets are off. (laughs) And that's why they have to kind of look through these spikes, because there are certain things they can affect, certain things where they can't affect it. And so this dynamic between oil prices and the commodity shock and wages, which is the key thing, will they go up in order for people to be able to pay for their gasoline? That's the really key question. And that's what they'll be looking at. And what alternatives do central banks really have? Like, I know inflation targeting hasn't always been the way they've worked. I think it came in in the early 90s in New Zealand to begin with, and Britain followed, and then the Federal Reserve in America. Yeah, 2% is now the kind of ISO standard interest rate, which many banks set. But I think that there are alternatives. For example, some people say you should target a nominal rate of GDP growth. That's another way of doing it. And some people even think you should automate it. You know, you have something like the Taylor rule, which gives you what the rate should be given what inflation is, but also unemployment. So the Fed has a dual mandate, obviously, which is not just inflation, but also full employment. So, you know, some people even think we should go full technocrat and... (laughs) essentially have a simple equation which runs monetary policy. But why not? If they're meant to be reacting purely on an impartial basis. You can bet someone would game the system. If they knew it was an equation running it, then you could manipulate the equation. I don't know how you'd do it, but there would be a hedge fund that would work it out. I don't know what kind of equations are running in Andrew Bailey's head right now. Not many, I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to subscribe and hear our new episode every Wednesday. Thank you to everyone who's left a rating or review on their podcast platform so far. It really helps us grow the show. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.